How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 152. I realized we passed our milestone. It just sort of... We just sort of passed it and didn't really acknowledge it. You know what, what I mean? Was 151? Yeah, like we did oh, that 150 it, episode and then we just sort of moved on. Kept moving. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on 156. What was it? 156? Yeah, we are. That is it would math, be one. Yeah, that'll be our third year anniversary and end of year awards show. Exciting. So. I think we just got to keep moving at this yeah. point. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually did pull up some articles I'll get into a little later, if you would like. The award season has officially begun. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think at this point in the season, it's more like what's being talked about as opposed to like what do we think should be winning because it's like a lot of these films are not out yet or mm-hmm. we haven't even heard of or, you know, what are, what are the interesting ones. So I'll bring those up later. But you're right, we're getting to that season, which is yeah. exciting. It was very exciting with our film of the week to see some of the trailers that came before the film mm. of the week because that was probably some of these films that might actually be in this this award season conversation. I imagine. Yeah, for sure. Can I guess what the trailers were? Yeah, because we probably we saw the film separately, but I actually did go to SX to see this one, so we both saw it at the same go SX cinema. Um, I know Licorice Pizza for sure was one of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh my god, I cannot wait. That's actually real soon. That's like less than two weeks. Yeah, it's which is kind of crazy. Technically, it's next week. Oh wait, no, that's not true. It's Boxing Day, isn't it? Yeah, um, we're getting there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll get there soon. Um. Oh god, what was the other one? I don't know. What were the other trailers? Ooh, now I'm blanking on it. That's See, now I'm blanking too. Because <laughs> the Licorice Pizza one was the one that lived in my head. Exactly. And I was hoping yeah. you would help me over with the other. There was two. I know there was another, the second, oh, the other the one. What the hell was the other I'm one? now blanking on it. It wasn't oh, Tragedy of Macbeth. That's it. That's it. It just came to me. Yeah, that's yeah. exciting. So both of them, I'm pretty sure, will be in this conversation, I imagine. For sure. And probably will get their own episodes, I imagine, on the show. Oh, for sure. So yeah, um, that'll be in the coming weeks and definitely play into some of your, you know, awards news updates and now even our discussion of what we think is going to be winning a lot of these awards. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll, I'll ha- be happy to bring those up later. Mm-hmm. But of course, I uh, want to ask you, Zeke, if you have a fun fact or a trivia fact for the film of the week, The French Dispatch. Yeah, no worries. Well, um, so basically, uh, this is a, a, f- a film that centers around a, a newspaper. And yes, um, we'll obviously go into uh, more detail into that later. But obviously, the film was inspired by Anderson's love of the New Yorker and some characters mm. and events in the film are based on real-life equivalents from the magazine. For example, one of the three stories centres around the May 68 student occupation protests inspired by nice. Ma- Mavis's, uh, Gil- I'm going to say Galant's uh, two-part article, The Events in May, A Paris Notebook, which is obviously the Timothy Chalamet, Francis yep. McDormand uh, ep- episode? Ep- yeah, section. Ep- episode works. Yeah. The story yeah. I think they're called, what, story one, story two, yeah. story or features three. one, two. Yeah, I don't remember the term, but um, yeah, you're right. That's cool. I like that because it, they are very bizarre stories. So And yet still, grand, I actually, you know, obviously not to go too much into the review, have a sense mm-hmm. of grounded realism to them, which yeah, for sure. isn't too, uh, one of those things that isn't found as much, I think, in Wes Anderson films. So yeah, well, they're very vibrant and, and bizarre and quirky, so... Right, um, finding a bit of ground in this is not the most common thing in these mm-hmm. films. But yeah, what about you, Jake? I like that. Yeah. So the the fact that I sort of stumbled upon, which I thought was interesting, of course, you know, we're talking about the French Dispatch. Of course, French being a big, big part of this film, and even though that Timothy Chalamet, who we just mentioned in, in that sort of story two, I guess you would say, um, 
Well, the second story, story three, isn't it? Well, that's like the main, the oh, second sorry, main two. one. Two, yeah. Um, because you got like your little, little small bits at the the end yeah, of the film. Yeah. Oh, I cannot wait to talk about the structure of this film, honestly. Um, but it's interesting because he, of course, is fluent in French, but only has English dialogue in this mm. film, which was the trivia fact I stumbled upon. I thought it was interesting, but even more interestingly, as fellow Australians, of course, we've had a lot of films backdated until this month. We're not even halfway through the month. And we've had three Timothy Chalamet films come out so far. In Dune, Don't Look Up, and The French Dispatch, which is, uh, he's a working man. Yeah, I was going to say, between him and Patterson, <laughs> yeah, and Driver, yeah, yeah. all three of them have had very busy years. Yeah, that's, well, yeah, Driver's had Annette in The Last Duel. And House of Gucci. Oh, of course, that's real soon as well. So. Yeah. Big, big film, and Patterson's had um, quite a few, I think, also. Um, I think so well, he had a couple last year. Obviously, the yeah, devil think more. Yeah. all the time. Yeah, Tenet. That was yeah, that was more of a twenty twenty spin. But then the Batman, of course, is around the corner. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of working actors coming out. Work in the craft. Exactly. I have to ask you though, the eleven hundred films you must watch before you die mm-hmm. poster sitting behind you. Obviously, this film's a little too new for it to have been on the poster. But would you put it on the poster? Yeah. Hmm. And that doesn't mean, you know, I'm going to obviously talk about where I would put this on my Anderson ranking as someone who has seen every single one of his right uh, feature-length films. And uh, Well, you have seen... I've seen all of his yeah, feature-length beautiful. films. So, um, I wouldn't... Uh, well, discuss where that places, but in terms of, uh, you know, all of the elements that we're going to discuss in the second half of the show, 100% this needs to be on that list for that yeah. reason. Beautiful. I agree. And yeah. in fact, I'm going to say it ahead of our discussion. This may be my favorite live action Wes Anderson film. That is pretty far. crazy. So yeah, I haven't seen them all, but I've seen the majority yeah. of his films. I would put it on that list. But of course, we'll get to that later in the show. That's, yeah. Very Until exciting. then, what have you caught in the last week, Jake? I've got a few things. So there were a few things I wanted to watch. I noticed you had seen, so I actually avoided those. I was let's catch a, a wider net, so to speak. So I went to the cinema quite a few times this week. I saw Titan, uh, the uh, French film, of course, a French uh, Titan as opposed to so You had a very French week. I know. I really did, actually. And um, Luna providing those French experiences. I love it. <laughs> great. So this, of course, won the Palme d'Or uh, earlier this year from filmmaker Julie uh, Decanu, who actually, I have a short film, Junior, saved on my YouTube tab, i got to watch it, and then i got to watch Raw as well, which is also her film, which I haven't seen, seen either of those, but I've always been very interested to see it. They seem quite, um, I guess provocative is the correct word, but just very sort of kind of gross, which I'm always interested in films like that, especially body horror. And this film definitely leans into it more, but i got to say, my cinematic experience with Titan consisted of me slowly curling into a bowl as the movie kept playing and like, covering my eyes but having my fingers just gaped open enough to still look at the screen it was quite an experience this film and i won't get too into the weeds of what it's about but just to give you an idea of how bizarre this film is it does involve all sorts of things with the little girl in a car accident having a titanium plate in her head growing up to have a uh, very interesting type of relationship with cars and motor vehicles and uh, that's all I'm going to leave it at. <laughs> wow. But um, in terms of the themes, though, it's interesting because it really dwells into these sort of bizarre 
uh, I, well, the ideas aren't bizarre. The presentation is very bizarre. Like I said, curling into a ball, so looking away. It's very hard to watch. There's like the body horror unleashes and mm. some of the, the violence is inflicted throughout the film. But the themes are a lot more gentle of like what it is to, to love something or to feel love and even gender fluidity and things like that. Which is really interesting in a film like this one, The Palm Dior, because it's so out there. It's just ridiculously out there, as opposed mm. to something like Nomadland, which I, I think that won the, the Golden Lion. I don't know if that won mm-hmm. The Palm Dior, but you know that's a polar opposite of a very grounded, very realistic film, very pseudo-documentary. Yeah, exactly. While this leans more into the completely absurd, absurd and, and bizarre. But I want to give a shout-out to, I guess, the lead actress, Agaf. Uh, Roselli, I believe that's her, how you mm-hmm. pronounce her name, but she's sort of this unknown French uh, who, my God, I think that might have been one of the most like physically daring performances I've ever seen ever in any film. Mm. And not just for the fact that she's nude, maybe 80% of the film, <laughs> but just like the physical torment that her body's going through. And again, I won't spoil what specifically is happening to her, um, but just like the emotions that she has to carry through with that and just the vulnerability you know again like yeah being nude on on camera for so long but like what what she goes through as a character i just like it was so engrossing i couldn't i was like this is an incredible performance from just someone nobody's really ever heard of (laughs) in terms of uh you know uh, performance or, or actors or anything like that so i was pretty blown away by that it's very uh it it's a very interesting watch if you're dared, but it's a very rewarding watch. I'd probably describe it like that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So it's sort of in that sort of, not obviously in the same sort of genre feeling, but that Nightingale-esque, like you've got to be kind of brave to watch the film. Yeah, in a sense. I think uh, the Nightingale is a very very specific sort of thing. You can point to like one scene and I'm going to be like, yeah, that's going to scare mm. people away. Or even the Nitram effect, you know, like mm, we were talking exactly. about with... Um, just the film rewards you if you can tough it out, but it doesn't mean it's a comfortable watch. Exactly, exactly. It's about that experience and what it means. And mm. and it's funny because I would actually compare it akin to something like Kajillionaire, which is a much more semi-family-friendly, much more colourful, mm. easygoing version of similar themes about like love and parental love and things like that um, that the film touches on, but this, this takes it in a much more twisted direction, uh, which is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Yeah, I, I I think it's excellent. The other one I saw was Don't Look Up. So I mentioned this last week, this new Adam McKay film mm-hmm. that's in cinemas now. It'll be on Netflix in a week or two, so um, you don't have to run out to go see it. It will, it will come to you soon enough, audience. But I did see this, and I will say, I don't want to go off the cuff too much with this little intro, but I think it's an important quote to, to mention. So I've been watching uh, Dr. John Campbell on YouTube, who's... Uh, primarily been doing videos about, you know, COVID and the new Omicron variant, all of these things, and sort of just putting down a very calm perspective look on what's actually happening in terms of the science and the the statistics that are coming through with that. And one of the things he's talking about is how, you know, this could potentially be more transmissible but less deadly, and that that could actually be a great thing for the the human race because of, you know, we could build a herd, uh, what's it called, herd immunity, from something being more transmissible, but generally a weaker strain. Mm -hmm. Now, the quote that I want to take him referring to that is he said something on the lines of, you know, if this happens, if this is a good thing, it's not because humans have been particularly clever. It's because we are fortunate. And this film, 
takes that away and says, what if we aren't fortunate? What if the only way to save the world is if humans were particularly intelligent? And I was worried going into it because it's Adam McKay's first like fictitious event. Mm-hmm. Of course, the previous films, and I guess you would call it an unofficial trilogy at this point. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, with the big short and Vice, respectively, doing that. Because the housing market crash and, and Dick Cheney's vice presidency and, and that. So I was like, how is he going to deal with doing something that's not based on any particular real thing? Because yeah, this is about having it. that grounded historical context backing. Exactly. So, well, yeah. like the, the craziness of the plot. It's like, well, this actually happened. Yeah. You sort of have that backing. And then this is more about uh, two astronomers played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, respectively, who discover a comet's going to hit the Earth and, and destroy it in like six months. And a lot of the plot is them sort of just trying to convince people that this is truthful through the media, through the government. And this is a tricky goal for the film to achieve because it has to convince us, the audience, that the people in the film or the characters don't care about something that's completely threatening of all of life and humanity mm. and you know we what we read scripts and watch films with establishing stakes and the characters and their reactions to those stakes is what sells it so the film has to convince us of the other way around but without the benefit of the big short being like well this did happen mm-hmm. so it's more believable yeah that being said i think it really works i think the film is easily the funniest film i've seen all year it's hilarious i was pissing myself laughing throughout the whole experience mark rylance is phenomenal in this film (laughs) and i won't i won't spoil why but like just his voice work alone is just spot on the 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 rylance love fest from i know started all the way back in uh trial of chicago and now (laughs) we're we're back a year later yeah well that's i think that's what's part of it is you think of his character in in trial chicago 7 where he's like a very calm collected lawyer yeah. He's very, he's not soft-spoken at all. He's very, you know, straight-laced with the lawyers and mm. the people. And he's very upfront about the reality of the situation. And then he walks on in this film. And just as soon as he opens his mouth, you're pissing yourself like Because of the juxtaposition of that. Where I, I can't, I don't want to do the voice. I can't do the voice. Because like, you just, you need to watch this film to understand sure. why he's so funny. But it's it. coming out at like, Boxing Day, isn't it? Roughly. I I, yeah, around, it's later this month. The mm. Netflix drop. So it's not, it's not too long. Yeah, it's pretty soon, but I found it hilarious. I think the entire cast was hilarious, and you got, you know, Mel Streep and Kate Blanchett and, and Timothy Chalamet. We just mentioned like it's a stacked cast, not quite as stacked as the film of the week, although that's a very unfair, <laughs> that's an unfair Huge, competition, hard competition. To I know, with. but um, I thought it was hilarious, and I think in that way it, it was able to convince me of like, well, this is you know people do ignore things like this, and you know we've seen the response with Trumpism and and people's responses to COVID and all these things, and the fact that the film creates these analogues where it's like every now and then you'll see a character wearing a, a red and white hat or a little cap, you know, very mm. Trumpist cap. And it's like, I know some people could roll their eyes at that, but I thought you kind of need that in a film like this to really buy. Do you think it handles it better than something like, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it now. But... Are you thinking of Death to 2020? No, um, I although, I, yeah, I re- yeah. remember that now. I was going to say something along the lines of um, Bombshell. They handle oh, that sort of media yes. skew satire more. I think I think Bombshell does take itself more seriously, and I think it kind of has to because you're right. It's based on real scandals and everything like that. Mm. Um, although it was funny watching Bombshell because you're right. It has a very Adam McKay-esque camera work and delivery. Or well, even the, the deliverance of humour in that too, or that yeah, satire yeah. Is, is still present so maybe that was and we obviously 
were quite critical of, of Bombshell relative to McKay's, both of his, with Vice and... Right. Um, well, I just remember being like, why copy him? Like, I yeah, didn't, well, I didn't why understand. Tell this, why yeah. tell this story in in that style too, I think. Right. Um, but then you could argue the same point with Vice. I think we had our yeah. moments where they handled... They had moments where, they, especially the more serious stuff, they you know still... Um, had that element of satire in mm. there or it was the timing like it knew when to be quite serious and then when yep. to be quite comedic well th- this film definitely has i think this film generally goes off the wall a little bit more because it's completely fictitious mm. so it pushes more the the anchorman absurdity at times a, a little bit i mean it, it it doesn't have the moment when all the news anchors come together and kill each other <laughs> it's like it doesn't get to that level of absurdism um, because it's like at the end of the day, everything that like newscaster says, or like the president who's played by Meryl Streep, everything that she says, it's like it's ridiculous lines, but it's like it's not so ridiculous when you look at the presidencies of the last few years. If it was a spectrum, you'd say it would sit in the middle, right? Like between uh, those anchorman absurdities right. versus the you know like the more big, big short, short and stuff. And yeah, I, I I reckon that's a fair assumption. Like yeah. I wasn't pissing myself laughing watching the Big Short. Like there's funny moments and and deliveries. Mm-hmm. But this is just, like, laugh out loud. Like, so silly, so funny. Um, but I think it works in that absurdism and the way they sort of create those visual analogues to yeah. the real-life situations. And I think the film gets serious when it needs to, especially towards the end. And I won't, obviously won't spoil what happens, but there are some serious uh, scenes. But I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I thought it was very funny and very sharp and very... I, I think it's smart for them to play the... the make laughing jokes out of it as opposed mm. to make a film that's so frustrating you walk out of the cinema feeling angry like these are the people in charge of who would i mean the big show has an element of that where mm. you walk out feeling frustrated that these things have been let happened yeah i mean this film leans into more like let let's have fun with it let's laugh but like, there is an essence like said, of the, truth the death to 2020 tried to make the fun of exactly yeah kind of failed miserably at it yeah if you if you hated death to 2020 like if you purely hated it you might not like this film because it leans sort of in a similar direction mm. but i think i think this film there's more fun with it because it is a bit more fictitious. Bit a tough year for comedy too like i've like yeah. looked back on the stuff i've watched this year and stuff that came out this year there's not actually been that many funny films no no so it's nice to hear that there's something coming to everyone very shortly that's yeah. going to at least give them a bit of a laugh you know Exactly. For, for better or worse. Or no, which I'm, say it. I'm very happy. It is very about. strange now that you're getting to the point where you're watching trailers before movie starts and you've got like, app, this is an Apple original. Yeah. This yep. is a Netflix original. And you're like, wow, we live in this world now where even when I go to the cinema, I'm like surrounded by the streaming <laughs> perms. Well, that's it. They want their, their Oscar runs. I think yeah. their theatrical runs. It. That's what it is. I'll quickly mention the one, the third film that I saw. I don't have much to say about it, so I'll just mm-hmm. rim through it. But I saw Passing, which I think premiered at Sundance earlier in the year. So this is the film with Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negger as um, two black women in 1920s Harlem, of which one of which is passing as white, which I didn't realize this was like a term where people, I guess in in this case, you have light enough skin tones could actually pass off as a white person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I don't want to say this was common, but this is like a known thing. Yeah, it's a product of... um like obviously we have a very we actually have a very similar thing here in australia too mm. where it's just a part of assimilation or like the the outbreeding of um, right that cult obviously here it was for our 
native culture and for them it was african american so yeah it, it's a it's not it's a heavy-handed term but it's right. it is yeah uh what's the film based around though is it the cultural social balance so it it definitely leans into so what it is is they're two childhood friends who haven't seen each other in years so when they bump into each other it's a bit of a shock to tessa thompson's character um you know to see her friend passing is right and that she's actually married to someone who's super super racist and doesn't even realize that their wife um is is an african-american or is black so it sort of dwarfs into that a little bit it feels more like a stage play with the conversations they're having Mm -hmm. um i will say i've i found the i thought the lighting was excellent because it's a black and white film Mm -hmm. but they actually really use it to its advantage in the fact the way they light the two women in certain scenarios and how they actually play with their skin tones and really overexposing it so they do you know if you have no context for who these actresses are and you watch a black and white film with this lighting you they could actually pass as well i thought it was very clever the way they would do that using the medium effectively yeah. exactly and then you know when tessa thompson's at home with her family in a much more comfortable environment the the lighting is a little more flat or she's against like silhouetted windows mm-hmm. that obviously highlight the darker skin tones and i thought that was very subtle and very clever use of black and white photography but that being said and this is almost to the question you asked me I kind of got nothing out of the story. Okay. It was very delicate, very quiet, to a fault. I kind of finished watching the film and then I forgot that I'd seen it. Mm. Especially <laughs> when you compare it to stuff like what some of the stuff we covered earlier in the year with like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and yep. with the same sort of dialogue from the same sort of time too. Um, yeah, pr- pretty much very similar decades, yeah. Yeah, so um, which you know you can still think of really you know scenes from that that are embedded in your head because of how effective they were yes um so um that's it that is a shame though it is a shame because like i really like what they did with the cinematography and mm-hmm. things like that but it was just such a a fleeting film unfortunately yeah well it's good it's good they're using you know and we're going to talk about how they use monochromatic stuff in the film of the yep. week too and obviously yep. uh, i find that this year has been quite there's been quite a substantial amount of films that have been shot you know, like black and white monochromatically. And some of them obviously are really effective with it. Like, I do think it's going to be, it's going to look great with um, Tragedy of Macbeth coming out. I yes. think it's going to be really, um, you know, we talked about Lighthouse this year. I know that's not this year's film, but, you know, then there were films like Malcolm and Marie where it kind of just mm. did nothing. At yeah, all. there was black almost white, no point to it. It was just black and white for the sake of being black and white. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, I've always talked about, like when you see a film, even from a, like a student level, they do it in black and white, and you ask, "Oh, what's the point of them doing it in black yeah, and white?" Yeah. Like, and if they can't really give you a, a just or you can't find a justifiable answer, then it's kind of pointless. But yeah, the way you exactly. just evaluated it obviously gives it. Yeah, almost immediately, I was like, I understand the black and white use yeah. in passing. It it's quite ingenious actually, mm-hmm. and I think that's great. Even if I think the film is frankly very forgettable overall. But I love the technical side of it, For and sure. the performances are great as well. Like I have no- nothing negative to say about the performances. Two cool. great women. But yeah. Well, speaking of films that you could have seen probably in the cinema, but now are on streaming platforms. Yeah, that was another one passing. Yeah. Um, I've seen a couple of Netflix originals, which I'm sure mm. I wouldn't be surprised if they might have got maybe short cinematic runs. Um, I think I, they both did. Both the ones I'm thinking cool. of that you saw. Cool. So I obviously um, caught uh, The Power of the Dog. Mm. So I'll talk about that one first. That's the Benedict Cumberbatch 
um, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons film. Very exciting. Um, very exciting. It's cool to see a, a husband-wife duo. Yeah. Um, in uh, in the film together, so that was really cool. Of uh, course, they married. I forgot I about know. that. <laughs> you forget too, because I originally thought it was Maggie Gyllenhaal win it, and then I was like, "That's Kirsten right. Dunst." Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, basically, the film centers around nineteen twenty. Five Montana and these two brothers, Cumberbatch and Plemons, are uh, from like a they're quite successful um, ranchers, right? Yep. Like, and obviously Montana. If you know anything about Montana, it's it's a very country. It's very rural. Um, sort of like you know, it's like Wyoming in its extremity. Extremity as you know, if we tie it back something like Wind River, right? Um, which this film definitely emphasizes um, people's connection to the land to right. an extent. Um, and I think it's, it's a very interesting film. So obviously this got a lot of buzz behind it. Um, yeah, well, I know it's, it's directed by Jane Campen, who of course did the piano decades ago, which won the Palme d'Or, speaking of which, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's funny. In fact, Julia, um, Julie Decker is actually the second woman to ever win the Palme d'Or next to Jane Campen. So there look at go. the connection right there. I love it. Um, and th- yeah, a lot of people are saying this film's better than the piano. Um, I can't moderate that. Unfortunately, I haven't got around to watching yeah. the piano. That's yet. high praise, though. Holy crap! Um, I think that there's, there's, there's definitely. See, it's a really effective film. Um, it's one of those things that at at it first it has seems to have a very substantially simple plot. Um, these two successful brothers go into one of the local towns where they do their cattle runs, um, and Dunst, who at the time is a, a, a widowed mother to mm. this young adolescent boy who. He's quite odd and quite feminine in his uh, traits and personality, like he does like, okay. um, and obviously most of him, most people around him label him as, as a homosexual, mm. like it's definitely heavily implied that, and sort of, um, you know, Cumberbatch is this hard, like hard, um, very judgmental um, person. And I don't want to spoil, like obviously spoil too much of the plot, but obviously as yeah, it unfolds, I would love to see this. Soon, um, yeah. It definitely like unfolds because obviously Plemons is presented as this the more clean and refined brother of the two. Um, That's shocking. Yeah, <laughs> Plemons gets to be the nice one in the in the film. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah, the he's weirdo. A bit more sim- and he's you know played off like he's a bit more simple, like okay. he's not as smart and. Yep. Um, and obviously as the film unfolds, um, you know, Plemons develops a relationship with Dance, they get married and then they all move into the ranch together and it sort of unfolds from there. But it it definitely has a really cool, real like last, like it's a very slow, it takes its time. Mm -hmm. And then the last 10 minutes, like it all just sort of hits the fan and has this big hook reveal at the end and you're just like, Oh, that was good. Like it's it's, it's actually funny because I remember last you had started watching this before last week's episode, mm-hmm. and you said that oh well I won't talk about it because I haven't finished it yet. So that didn't. must have been a surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Surprise so I really really liked this film. I think it's definitely going to be in the the conversation with the upcoming award season, um, mm. particularly for probably Cumberbatch's performance in it. Cool, yeah. Which is exciting because obviously you know he's got another he's got his massive film coming out this week, which I'm sure yeah he does yeah. later in the show. Um, but yeah, the other film I caught was um, obviously I think it was was his name Lin Man. Uh, Lin Manuel right. Miranda. That's off the top of my Lin head. Lin Manuel Miranda. Yep. Yes, um, this yep. is his directorial debut. 
Um, Ooh, very nice. So obviously he's the composer behind. Uh, oh, sorry, beg my pardon. It's actually his second film. So there you go. I'm oh, retract- I, thought, I remember hearing that it was his directorial debut. Well, he has a film from '96 called Clayton's Friends. Apparently, that's 59 minutes. But I think this is. Right, people are claiming this is his first. So we'll call, feature, we'll call that. I believe. There. Yeah. Um. Obviously, he's the composer behind like, like Hamilton and Into the Heights that came out earlier this year. Yep. And a couple of other like you know Moana and stuff. So, obviously, very talented musically. Yep. Um. But this one obviously you know stars Andrew Garfield, which I don't think I've watched an Andrew Garfield film in like. I can't remember the last time I oh, saw I him. I saw one a couple of weeks ago, if you remember. Yes. <laughs> I did do. not like it. Um, well, you <laughs> might like this one a little bit cool, more. Cool. Obviously, the centers around on the cusp of his 30th birthday. Uh, promising young theatre composer navigates love, friendship, and pressures to create something great. It's based around, um, I'm going to get his name. Um, he's John in this, but it's based around the guy who eventually went on to make Rent, which is obviously oh, okay. one of the most about um, one of the most successful Broadway musicals in New York history. I think it was on Broadway for like twelve years. Right. Um, he ended up dying the week bef- week of its premiere. So, Holy crap! Yeah, um, in real life, yeah, like of an aneurysm. So, um. Which is like, that's what the end of the film is. It's like, oh, then he went on to make like one of the most and died before it premiered. Right. And right. then it went on to win a Pulit- like a Pulitzer and stuff like that. So, so this is who Andrew Garfield is playing, Tony's. essentially. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. essentially. So it obviously definitely follows. It's less, um, what's the word I'm looking less for? Glamorous. Less glamorous. Less cynical and scathing and self-critical compared to Bo Burnham's insides perspective okay, okay. on turning 30. <laughs> um, but it definitely has those um, feelings embedded in it too. Obviously, the centres around, I think it's the early mid-90s. So, you know, they have very like early, early computers yep. um, and stuff. And obviously, it's still, you know, they're still riding that, like the post-AIDS epidemic yeah. of the 80s and stuff because a lot of obviously friends are you know, in the LGBTQ community. So it's like, that's a big part of it. It's a big center point of the the plot and stuff. And John himself, you know, it's based around his relationship with his girlfriend and how they're both moving in different directions. And he's still trying to pursue the dream while she's starting to become more grounded. Yeah. And look, the music's really good. I think the best number is the first number. I think the first 10 minutes are fantastic. Definitely the midpoint is a bit slow and that, dips i think a little bit and then it does pick up in the last like the last bit yep it really hits home hard so overall i was pretty um seldom positive on it um i think i gave it a three and a half uh, which i think is about fair where it sits yeah garfield's great in it awesome it's Um, his first musical i'm pretty sure he can sing you can sing really well awesome um and yeah the music like all of the the musical actors are very good singers um yeah, I look forward. I hope we see more because this was obviously. I have a feeling we'll see more of Andrew Garfield next week. Putting, <laughs> putting my hat in that prediction. Oh, it's, that film is. Oh. It's gonna happen. Zig. Talk about it at the end of the show. It's gonna but, happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm. I'm. I thought it was overall. Yeah, quite, quite great. Um, it awesome. also it integrates a like live like has the sort of the Chicago way. Um, I don't know. You've seen the Chicago film, but the same structure to it where. They have like the musical on that's right. telling the story right. of the musical, um, and it makes a very it's a very easy plot to follow and such. Cool, so, cool. Um, ends up being quite an enjoyable hundred and it's just a hundred an hour fifty. 
Um, so 110 <laughs> minutes. I don't know why that broke my brain. I say 104 times. And he's just said an hour 50. <laughs> an hour 50. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, what? what's that in minutes? Um, Hanukkah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so um, <laughs> overall, I would recommend it. It's on Netflix. It's, oh, sweet. I didn't see Into the Heights, but I think it's probably, I would take a safe bet and it's, it's better than Into the Heights. It'll be interesting yeah. to see how it goes up against Spielberg's West Side Story yeah, in a couple of weeks. Is, that's getting reviewed now really well. Really because, well reviews. Like, mu- like that musical category is actually quite stacked this year, you know? Yeah, Golden so. Globe is going to have an interesting musical yeah. comedy section. Yeah, because... It'll be Don't like, Look Up just, versus 10 musicals. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> I was gonna say we, we just talked about the lack of comedies we're yes. talking about this year, so it's probably going to be a very musical-heavy category, which doesn't happen very often, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, because sometimes they put comedies in there. I think it wasn't, wasn't it trial of Chicago seven. Didn't that get put in the comedy? Category no, or something? it was, was the Martian was the big one that people were laughing at the mm. Martian. And then there wasn't, there was another se- music. Well, that was just cause that was a terrible film. That wasn't to do with the mm. genre. You're right. There's been some weird picks. So like squeeze away so, in there. Yeah. And I know into the Heights got like, yeah, seldom positive reviews too. So it's like, it'll be nice to have like a collection of like Spielberg in the musical category. That'd be a weird one. Oh yeah. He's probably going to win to be honest. Yeah. Unless, unless it's more of a, not a political thing, but like, oh, we love Lynn Manuel Miranda. Yeah. It's like, we just want to give him an award as opposed to like Spielberg. But then Spielberg, when's the last time he's got nominated? True. But it could also come back to, this is not an original versus an original. So... That, yep, that um, is another factor, actually. So, so we'll go on. Uh, it'll be interesting to explore that further. They're the movies yeah. I watched this week. I've been continuing watching Superstore as a, <laughs> as a show. <laughs> Very nice. Got yeah. really nothing to say. About it. It's funny, but it's it's impressive. They somehow managed to make 20 episodes inside of what is equivalent to like a Target or a Kmart. And right, it's still right. kind of funny. And if you worked in retail, it's it definitely has like a humor you can relate to. So, yeah, which, for sure. So big, big positives for that so nice. that's what i've caught in the last week yeah no worries well i thought you know we, we've mentioned many times you know what we think is going to be an awards contention things like that mm-hmm. so i think instead of a career update if you feel we should look at some of the very early award season discussions just to get a, a hint at what's actually been talked about what's in the running well, i have a feeling this is going to replace our career section quite a bit in this period quite possibly i think it did last year quite a bit yeah too. i think it's easy because you know it's it's hard to have career updates every single week and of course and the award season's just kind of you know progressively get more and more interesting until the oscar night so it's funny to see our shift too i reckon like over the three or four months and we started going through like the nomad lands the promising young woman and the yeah. early january push it almost we comes like, like a weekly thing with hitting we have best to alter it noms. because you're like oh yeah um i think this is actually better and no, this is better because yeah hey, yeah it's true you know sort of mess out you gotta think when we were in december last year we had not seen like most of the films that went on to go be nominated yeah yeah a lot of them point. came quite quite late so this is very rudimentary early stuff no, it is. Well, I think subject it, to change is a big asterisk. Well, that that's it. But um, you know, there's people I listen to and they sort of talk about how on the money some of these are in terms of predicting mm. Golden Globes and Oscar and critics nominations. But um, that's it. It's a fun race to follow. For gosh, it's coming up on like uh, not maybe three four month mm-hmm. race because it was it was April, wasn't it? The yeah. Oscars last year. Yeah, crazy. So these these use drag on so i'm gonna start with the afl or sorry the afi not the afl <laughs> that's coming back <laughs> the, in january the afl <laughs> top 10 movies of 2021 
Uh, no, because I'm referring to the AFI um, awards. So yeah, they they just sort of pick a flat ten films. Like these are our ten top films. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good place to start. So they listed Coda, which I think is very interesting, which I thought was good. A little wish it was a little better, but hey, it's in this list. Mm-hmm. Good for them. Don't look up, which of course I just talked about. Dune, which we talked about last week on the show. Uh, King Richard, which I think is a a Will Smith film. Oh, that's wow. yeah, that's coming up soon. I'm actually not sure when we're getting it, but I've been hearing about that lately, so that's up there. Licorice Pizza, which I don't think is too much of a surprise. Uh, Nightmare Alley, which is the new uh, Dottorio film coming out soon. Really? Yeah. So that's exciting. Made it. The Power of the Dog and Tick Tick Boom. Look at that, back to back. So well done, Zick. You're on the you're on the money. The Tragedy of Macbeth and West Side Story. So that's interesting. Big December. No so, French Dispatch. No, no French Dispatch. Very interesting. Uh, they do have an F an AFI special award here for Belfast and Summer of Soul. So I guess that's respectively international film mm. and documentary. I'd like to see if I can sneak in Belfast. Yeah, I think that's January. It's coming. I did see it on a poster somewhere at Luna, so that's very exciting. All right, now let's jump into the 2021 Hollywood Critics Association HCA nomination. So these are nominations. No winners yet. But in the Best Picture, we're looking at a pretty similar list. You've got Be in the Ricardos, which is actually the new Sorkin film. Okay. Which, bloody hell, he was on that fast, wasn't he? Just last year, he made one. <laughs> I wonder just... what he, uh, you know, what he does to uh, write this stuff so quickly. Yeah, <laughs> the Stephen Stephen King model. Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> yeah, him and the dialogue. So yeah, being the Ricardos. So Belfast, we just mentioned that. So that's actually in their main best picture category. That's interesting. Cool. It's not under international. Uh, Coda again, which I'm I'm surprised by the Coda love, but all right. Uh, Dune, uh, King Richard, Last Night in Soho. Good again. Love to see it. Uh, Licorice Pizza, Spencer, which is the new, um, what's it called? Christian, uh, Kirsten, no, Christian Stewart, or Kirsten Stewart. Kirsten Stewart. Kirsten, I always get mixed up with Christian Dunst. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's her playing Princess Diana, so that's Spencer. Uh, and then The Power of the Dog and Tick, Tick, Boom. Those are always going to be back-to-back, alphabetically, <laughs> which is go. quite funny. Um, and then leaning into Best Actor, we do have Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Power of the Dog, so... You're on the money there. Um, so Will Smith's getting uh, looked at for King Richard, which is interesting. And Nicolas Cage for Pig. What's uh, going on? <laughs> uh, we, we liked Nicolas Cage and Pig. Oh, he's great at it. It's just, wow, this is actually going to happen. <laughs> Fascinating. So Best Actress, we have Emily Jones for Coda. Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Christian Stewart for Spencer. Lady Gaga for House of Gucci. I think she's up there. Uh, and Nicole Kidman for being the Ricardos. Very interesting. Uh, wow. We have, in Best Supporting Actor, we have two from Belfast. We have uh, Kieran Hines or Hins, and then Jamie Dornan. So they're both for Belfast, as well as Jason Isaacs for Mass, Robert DeJesus for Tick, Tick, Boom, and Tony Kotsur for Coda. He must play the dad or the brother. I'm not too sure. Um, I had to look up King Richard. I needed to know what this was. Yeah, yeah, if you want to look that up. All I know is I think it's Will Smith. It is. Um, So it's basically Richard Williams serves as a coach to his daughters, Venus and Serena. So it's about Ah, uh, the Williams dad. That makes sense. That makes sense. And how he makes his daughters the best, some of the best Best darn tennis players in the world. And it looks like it's got Will, it looks like Will Smith in like a pursuit of happiness esque role, I imagine. (laughs) 
I love um, it. Or Seven Pounds or whatever. Feel good, feel good Will Smith movie. You yeah, yeah. Watch. No, it's I exactly love it. Shoot Happiness. I think it's a great film. Nice. Um, I will jump a little bit ahead. We have Best Animated or VSX uh, Performance, which is very interesting because you have Sylvester Stallone for Suicide Squad in here as well as performances in Encanto, Luca, and The Mitchell vs. The Machine. So I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> Probably the, I'd have to, you'd have to give it Mitchell's, wouldn't you? You'd have to give it to That's Mitchell's. a great animated film. Yeah. Yeah. Although I was just thinking of Sylvester Stallone in Suicide Squad. It makes me, <laughs> makes me laugh every time. Oh, uh, you never know. That It's interesting because, yeah, everything else is a fully animated film. Very most, classically Most CG quotable character film. in the film this year. Yeah. No? Fair <laughs> no, enough. Like... Fair enough. Now, looks like they've got 10 here for director. That's interesting. So, best director they have Denis Villeneuve for Dune, mm-hmm. Guillermo Totoro for Nightmare Alley, Jane Campen for The Power of the Dog, uh, Keefen Barang, oh, or Ke- Keenan, Keenef for Belfast, excuse mm-hmm. me, Lynn Manuel Miranda for Tick Tick Boom, Paolo Laren for Spencer, Rebecca Hall for Passing, which is interesting, for Direction. Wow. Fair enough. I also noticed that um, uh, Ruth Negg is actually up for supporting actress in passing as well, which is really interesting. Um, and then you have Coda, West Side Story, and King Richard as well for director. Uh, for screenplay, you have Sorkin for being the Ricardos. You also have Last Night in Soho, Mass, Belfast, and King Richard. For adapted screenplay, you're looking at Coda, Tick, Tick, Boom, Power of the Dog, Passing. Again, I'm a bit surprised by that. Mm. And The Lost Daughter, which is Maggie Gyllenhaal's film which actually yeah. I think starts playing next week in cinemas. So very exciting. We'll hear some different stuff in there. Yeah. Um, ensemble, we have Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up. I love that for Ensemble. Uh, King Richard and The Harder They Fall. That's interesting. Mm. That's getting a nod there. Um, you have your best first feature. So here you go, Lynn Miranda for Tick, Tick, Boom. So first feature, there you go. Very interesting. And then you have uh, Passing, Mass, The Lost Daughter. So if that's for Maggie Gyllenhaal again. And Pig, Michael Sanoski. There you go. Very exciting. Pig get some truffles. Yeah, get some truffles, boy. Uh, in terms of your more traditional best animated section, you have Encanto, Flea, Luca, Mitchell's vs. the Machines, and Raya and the Last Dragon. That seems pretty okay. yeah. Seems pretty fair. Um, best international film, you have A Hero, Drive My Car, Flea, Titan, which we talked about a minute ago, and The Worst Person in the World, which I'm hearing is excellent. I don't know much about it. I'm just hearing it's an excellent, mm. excellent film. So I'll be looking forward to that. And then documentary, you have Flea. So I guess that's an animated documentary, Flea, because in both categories. Mm. Wow, interesting. Uh, Summer of Soul, The Rescue, The Sparks Brothers. Wow, look at that. Edgar Wright, love there. And then Val, uh, best indie film, Coda, Mass, Pig, Shiver Baby, which we've talked about, and Spencer. I guess that's an indie film, Spencer? I suppose so. so. I guess that makes sense. Uh, Best comedy musical, so we were just talking about this. So you have Cryrano. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Uh, Free Guy, for some reason. In the Heights, Tick, Tick, Boom, and West Side Story. So you're right, there's a lot of musicals here. cat to put Free Guy in there because there was no other comedy. <laughs> I guess that is a comedy. I mean, I mean, it depends what kind of comedy. <laughs> you're six, it makes you laugh. Yeah. Well, I was saying, what, what is the reason behind you laughing while watching that film? Is it because you find their jokes funny? <laughs> or is it another reason? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Best action film, No Time to Die, Nobody. Very interesting. The Harder They Fall, The Suicide Squad, and Chang chi and The Legend of the oh, Ten is that Rings. interesting? Because there's pretty good fight sequences in Nobody, isn't there? Yeah, no. I, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. Okay. I, I think it's a great film to be, to be in that list. Um, best Horror Film, Quiet Place Part 2, Fear Street, 
Last Night in Soho, Malignant, and The Night House. I mean, that's a good that's a good roundup. Mm. From what I, I heard, The Night House is pretty good. So, really not to exciting. be confused with The Lighthouse. Yeah, exactly. All right, we'll wrap it up really quickly here. So, best cinematography, you got The Green Knight, which is awesome. Thank God, Green Knight's getting some love here. Power of the Dog, Spencer, Dune, and West Side Story. I think Dune's probably going to yeah, eat that. this one up. Uh, best score, you have The French Dispatch. Hey! That's the only one! How did get not cinematography That's too? the only one! What the... Wow. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. You also have Hans Zimmer's Dune, as well as the scores for Spencer, The Power of the Dog, and Last Night in Soho. Okay, that's a weird one. I love Last Night in Soho, but what score? It's all original music. Yeah, well, like, yeah. There's, like, one track that's, like, an original track they, they it's, mix. It's going to be the Dune, isn't it? I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, the French Dispatch score is excellent. Yeah, it it's is. pretty excellent. But yeah, I think I think we're gonna leave it at there. I mean, there are stunts for like Black Widow and Dune and Nobody. No one needs like to talk that. about Black Widow. We don't need to talk. About it. There's no need. <laughs> Let's just call it. But um, yeah. Oh, I will say editing as well. Let's throw it in there. Editing for Tick Tick Boom, Dune, King Richard, Last Night in Soho, and Belfast. Interesting. I, I think that's a good place to leave it. We've been going on, on enough. I had the National Board of Review winners here, which um, I'll just quickly... Oh, you know what? They gave Best Film and Best Director to Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson. I think I've been so excited off a trailer, like moved from a trailer. Right. Yep. As much, I, I, if there was a Best Trailer Award, and I'm, I've talked about this on the show, I wasn't going to watch the Licorice Pizza trailer because I was always going to see the film. Yes. Obviously... Can't help. I'm not going to close my eyes or walk out while the, the trailer <laughs> is playing the before a film starts. But I don't think I've been that moved by a trailer right. in like so long. And yeah. I was like, and it's got the dumbest Paul Thomas Anderson film name I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Even the title, like I know it's. I think out. it's based on a very specific record score, like the name of a record score he yeah. he wants. Yeah, like I look, I, I'm sh- I know it's going to ha- be a good title to look yeah. back on. Right. It's called Licorice Pizza. So, <laughs> let's be real here, you know. This is coming from the guy that made Boogie Nights. Like, right, yeah. So, um, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, I, I'm ridiculously excited for that. Yeah. Film. Like, oh. So that's that's definitely walking away with the top awards in the National Board of Review. Um, I'll just quickly go through this. So yeah, uh, Michael Sanoski for Pig, best directorial debut. It's fair enough. In terms of the animated section, we're looking at Encanto was sort of the the front runner. The Harder They Fall won Best Ensemble, which is interesting. The Tragedy of Macbeth for Cinematography. That's really interesting that they've already seen it. And uh, in terms of the awards buzz, it's leaning towards King Richard, Belfast, and West Side Story, respectively. Uh, in terms of screenplay, it actually went to the uh, international film A Hero for Best Screenplay. That's surprising. And then, of course, you've got Tragedy of Macbeth for Adapted uh, Screenplay. And then Breakthrough Performance was a tie between the two leads of Licorice Pizza. Look at that. <laughs> I love, I love to see that. That's great. God, it makes you so, it's sitting on a 4.2 right now. Oh, mate. Um, I am very excited for that. It's I wonder if that's one. his highest. I think still there would be blood and Phantom Thread might be higher. Yeah, 4.4 for there will be blood. That's but this enough. might be like my fourth PTA film that gets five stars, which would be ridiculous. Yeah, no, I mean, if, there, <laughs> if there's a director to earn it, <laughs> it's, it's going to be him. It's going to be the PTA. All right, well, like I said, I think that's a good round of uh, what should we look out for in terms of awards season. So we've both respectively caught quite a few of those, like the bigger ones. You know, Spencer snuck in there, King Richard snuck in there. Obviously, Liquor Rich Pizza is snuck in there. 
Um, I've seen Coda personally, but it's coming up a lot, so you know, maybe everyone else should watch Coda as well on Apple. But um, yeah, exciting. No worries. Well, it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The French Dispatch. We take as the subject of tonight's lecture, Mr. Moses Rosenthal, certainly the loudest artistic voice of his rowdy generation. Simone Naked Cell Block J Hobby Room. I want to buy it. It's not for sale. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes. In short, the picture was a sensation. The kids did this. Obliterated a thousand years of Republican authority in less than a fortnight. What do they want? Freedom. Full stop. I'm naked, Mrs. Crimmins. I can see that. Lieutenant Nescafier is the great exemplar of the mode of cuisine known as police cooking. The aromas of the kitchen cast a spell, which was to be mortally broken. As you know by now, we have kidnapped your son. From the foreman, one hour to press. You're fired. Really? Don't cry in my office. The staff of a European publication decides to publish a memorable edition highlighting the three best stories from the last decade an artist sentenced to life imprisonment, student riot, and a kidnapping resolved by a chef. Hmm. You spoiled the last I one. I was going to say, it was, like, <laughs> it was quite a revealing letterbox logline. Yeah. But what it does show is obviously mm. this is the 10th film by, feature film by Wes Anderson. Yes. Um, and this is the first one that isn't one through line plot as per se. Yeah. So it's funny because you sort of, you've read that logline, the trailer that plays, you know, that played a second ago, if you're listening to this. And I think even the poster, the way they credit the cast, it's all in the order of the anthology stories that are told in the story. It always it always starts with the first one, the concrete masterpiece, then it leads into revisions to a manifesto, then it leads into the, the private dining room of the police commission. It's a very... Mm. They're very conscious of the order of these stories, which is very interesting. Yeah. yeah. It, um, and it is interesting, yeah, obviously taking that anthology style because... It's not even a traditional anthology in the fact that this isn't uh, three separate directors. This is one right. director doing uh, three stories and, and doesn't really change any of the... Like, his conventions don't alter depending on the story. No, no. They're, they're um, consistently flippant is probably yeah. a good way to put it. <laughs> but I I heard going into this, uh, this film, this is the most Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson mm. film. Yes. And it's hard to disagree with that because I think... And it's because of the fact that each plot is, uh, or each story is completely isolated from one another. Like, right. there are messages in all of them, sure, but it's not like 
other films that have very clear through line plots the whole way through. You know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about Fantastic Mr. Fox and yes. the search for identity in that and and learning to when to grow up really is a, is a big part of that film um, through the whole way through. And obviously, normally we go through and discuss the plot, you know, point for point. Whereas this is kind of probably be a review where we go this story, that story, that story. Yeah, well, it, it almost it it almost spells out like how to approach this discussion. And I think what's funny is is going into this, there was a sense of being feeling overwhelmed. And it's like the film we did last week in Dune, mm-hmm. and then this film, and then the film we're going to do next week, which of course we'll talk about. I think they're all very overwhelming films in their own ways. Dune. They've got ridiculous casts. Like, yeah, yeah. I think that's the, the big thing. And the poster really shows, <laughs> showcases the... the the volume of cast. Yeah. Um, well, I think watching the trailer for this is, is it was so overwhelming. Like how much is happening with the cinematography and the styles, the ever changing, ever flippant use of color versus, you know, monocropic or like you said, the black and white style, the aspect ratio is constantly changing. There's so many different stories and characters and plots happening. And what I was so pleasantly surprised by is when I was sitting down watching this film, it was very easy to track. And it was actually very easy to, to see what the structure was actually doing because it's all in service of the structure of, like you said earlier, the, the inspiration of the New York Times and that it's just an article. And we start with, is it the obituary that we start with? Well, that's at the ending, no, isn't it? the end. We start with just sort of an introduction, like a preface where yeah, yeah, exactly. Owen Wilson sort of introduces us to, it's an evaluation of the region in which the French dispatch. Right. So it's like pages two to three. And yeah. It's, yeah. The introduction to like the city and the, and the location. And, and you're right, like how the whole thing has begun yeah. and operated. And it, it's interesting because it's the way that it's structured, like you said, you've just mentioned there, the page structure mm. and how each story is almost, you know, to the, the letter of length of, you know, obviously it's heavily driven through narration, this yes. um, whole film. But each section is driven, you know, driven through the narration of obviously whoever the writer was, mm. whether that was, you know, Owen Wilson, the opening bit, you know, it was... Um, and Tilda Swinton in the second bit, and Francis McDormand in the second bit, and a, a third bit, and then oh, Jeffrey Wright in yes. the final bit. Um, and it's sort of going through each of their individual. They all have different presentation formats for their sections, which yeah. keeps it unique and not stagnant because it would have been quite repetitive if they you know, if they were all just a slideshow. <laughs> Yes, yeah. yeah. Or they were all just like a television broadcast. Yeah, or You're them right. sitting in a typewriter, like clearly just typing. You know, yeah, they were, yep. they were, they, the the dynamic nature of this, basically the way Wes Anderson operates is, is, is you know, finds weird and quirky ways to kind of keep you entertained when it seems like it's just jumble being spewed at you at yeah. times. Which, you know, especially in the opening bits with, some of the you know explanation of, of the article, the obituary article, yep, yep, which sort of bookends the film itself. It's you're sort of overwhelmed. You by... yeah, you absolutely are overwhelmed, and then that's why it's such a relief when I realised what the structure actually was. Is like okay, I can actually relax because it's as much as there, it seems like there's so much expository monologuing being thrown at you about the origin of this sort of this, uh, I guess, journal magazine, if you will, um, but a lot of it's irrelevant. And the fact of the matter is Bill Murray, who is the boss, is barely in this film because the film is not about them necessarily as journalists or people. It's about the stories that they've captured. 
and what I love so much about what you pointed out is that the different modes mm. of presentation, whether it's a slideshow or a television broadcast, or and I love, and I'll get into it soon, but the, the one example in revisions to a manifesto where it actually cuts away from the action to, to do a, a Broadway play or a national um, stage production mm-hmm. many, many years in the future that explains the backstory of one random character. And even though it's really flipping and crazy and all over the place, to me, there's a very consistent through line of this is about the stories that people find and capture and retell and how those stories are reshaped and recontextualized over time and, and bringing them to an audience that this is what this entire film is about. And I, I freaking love it. Yeah. I'm going to cite, um, a certain, uh, person's letterbox review, Ooh, which okay. I quite liked. Uh, okay. One, one Jack Diagrella who really actually encapsulated pretty Ooh, much. It's the, me. Yeah. So I obviously, what I've fresh off this film. You watched so it like two hours ago. <laughs> I was, I walked away and I was like, I don't know where to start with what, how I feel about this film. Like I right. don't dislike it at all. I, entertaining which parts did i like which story did i like the most yes and why but i think the way you wrote it in your very you know smaller like it was quite small but it i want to elaborate i want to write a longer review yeah of course yes um the big thing that i liked about it was um obviously you do point out that you can see why the structure might bother some people yes um but I just love the vibrancy and variety of the sets and cinematography and love the way the layered stories within a story spoke to the messy, non-chronological nature of how journalists go about crafting and researching their stories and how they shaped and formed by recontextualized over time. I mm. think that really, that's the perfect way of right. summarizing this film. Particularly, I liked the non-chronological, the sort of sometimes the sporadic thought process. Cause yes. Obviously, one of the best parts is between each story, we see each of the writers interacting with Bill Murray yes. as he reflects on each of their methodologies and how he, honestly, he's very catering and respectful of his writers because they are what have, has given him um, his his empire, really, yeah. like his, his, his success. So, And each of them have very unique methodologies, you know which we'll go into when we're t- talking about the individual stories in isolation, but um, it was a hundred. Yeah. That's exactly what the, the story's about, which what, well, what the, the, at least there's a through line message there. And mm. that's probably not as prolific as some of his other films um, right? in terms of thematic messaging, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a worse film for that. It's, it's actually what probably the best film to show his technical expertise in live action, in my opinion. Um, and that's what I like about this film the most, I think, is it mm. showcases true altruism yep. is this film. <laughs> Very clearly, yeah. Um, and this will be the film that should be the flag bearer for Wes Anderson alter thinking, yeah. I think. It, it definitely sparked me from, from the cast to the variety, like I said, of the sets and the the shot types and the colour versus black and white and the aspect ratio. Like mm. It feels like Wes Anderson showing every single Wes Anderson tool at the wall. Yeah. To the point where he is almost directly calling back to, I, I like that this is, it has almost the Tarantino effect of this is his 10th film. So let's look back on all of the things that made all of my previous films mm. successful and loved yep. and bring them back in different ways. Like from the, um, the airplane um, hanger shot in the concrete 
uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to forget the the names of each of the stories. But right, the, yeah, the concrete masterpiece. Concrete yeah. masterpiece, yeah. you know, like how it went from room to room and then pulled out to the plane. That's the same as the submarine shot in Zizu. And, yep, yep, um, yep. You know, there's a mixture of like weird sort of like green screen um, effects in the Owen Wilson stuff, which is in some of the other uh, films like in um, Darlajine Limited. And yeah. Then, there's stuff like when in the Chalamet story, when they open up the cafe, you know, like these things of we've seen, we saw in like that dollhouse effect that we saw in Grand Budapest. So it's like, yep. he really is, I wouldn't say it's like self-aggrandizing or like, you know, self, like, like it's just basically. For well, him, it's, it's fun a- referential or self-referential techniques. And like the ones I thought of, I can't remember which story it was, but there was a lot of hallway pans and transition mm-hmm. shots that were totally Moonrise Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have animated segments, which we actually predicted in Fantastic Mr. Yeah. Fox there would be animated segments in this film. There are stop motion, too. There's subtle stop motion right, bits. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the walls being shot off. Yes, yes that's yes, stop yes, motion. Yes. Yeah, and that's when he mixes it, which he did that in Zizu, too. So it's basically this film is 100% going to... It's the perfect 10th film because yeah. it's the, the film amalgamation that, of all these techniques. Yeah, and it's like, does it make it the most thought-provoking? Like, is it Owl of Dogs thought-provoking? Absolutely not. No, right. it's, it's just kind of like an appreciation of that. But you could argue the same thing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that that film is really just... These are all the really cool things you like about Tarantino films, kind of put him in what he aspires as his favourite decade. And then we saw how Edgar Wright kind of flips that on its head with his interpretation of the 60s, 70s culture a couple of weeks back. So I think that's what I took away from from my experience with it. I like, like, I really liked it. But it rewarded me for watching all of his films that came before it. Yeah. No, a thousand percent. And I'm glad like that we both we both picked up on that sort of amalgamation of his previous tool sets and, and styles and aesthetics, but that we both pointed to different films and different scenes and how those came back. Because you're right, this is, yeah. the, this is the Wes Anderson film. Yeah. This film, <laughs> I, like, this is the film that you would use in a film class to describe this particular auteur. Because yeah. it's the easiest one to just tick all the boxes in one hit, you know. Um, but... I would say if you've never seen a Wes Anderson film before, this is not the first one you should go to. Yeah. Okay. Because unless you were learning about him and you wanted to work backwards, maybe, but I think you get the best viewing experience out of it. The more yeah, it's the the more rewarding. Yeah. You're right. Because that's it. You go into it understanding where all of these techniques are coming from. You've Mm -hmm. seen it slowly grow throughout the career. Yeah. And now it's being utilized to such an in, like an intense effect. Well, it's like like I would say to you, it's like, would you say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the first Tarantino film you should watch? Or should you watch right. ones that come before so you can get more out of it? Because like yeah. the ending of that film is absurd and is out of nowhere, but it makes sense if you've seen yes. Tarantino films yes. before. That's a really good example, actually. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm obviously an advocate... If you can, like obviously with someone like Julia Deccanu, I'm just talking about, I'm almost working backwards because mm. I've watched her latest film and now I'm going to go back and watch the others, which isn't as rewarding in terms of discovering techniques and themes that directors mm-hmm. establish. But I think you're right. In this film in particular, you're rewarded for, for noticing all of those subtle visual yeah. callbacks. I mean, we can even talk about even our journey within this show. We went from yeah. episode 20 to episode 51... Uh, 52. Yeah, so 50-something. It's 50-something yeah. for Moonrise, and then, you know, 149. Nine. 148. No, yeah, you're right, you're right. 148. So it's like, you know, like, we've watched four now from him of his 10 yeah. on this show. 
and then watch the other ones, you know, normally in weekly watches and such. So, like, I think I've seen next to all of his films in the confines of this three-year period. So yeah, it's wow. Like, that's incredible. Um, that's, yeah, that pretty much speaks volumes to uh, that sort of evolution of understanding. And that was my biggest takeaway. I'm and trying to... the coolest poster. <laughs> you got to get that poster, yeah. What is so bad? Am I... Remind me... Was Rock was Bottle Rocket the first Wes Anderson film I had seen, and it was on the show? No, because Fantastic would have been. No, I hadn't seen Fantastic what? at that point. No, then it might have been. That's insane. That is pretty crazy. Yeah, because Grand Budapest I watched for the first time while we were making the show. So you you started crazy. with this first. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. No, which is awesome. Which is like, it's funny because I, I could almost tell the origins of his styles mm-hmm. just from the the references and the, and the jokes that people have made about. Yeah. His style. Well, the two, uh, the only two I'd seen at that point were um, uh, the two animated. Uh, yeah, wow. and, and fantastic. So I hadn't seen any of his live actions of the now eight of them now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this this one, yeah, I think the, the best way doing it was probably just to move from story to story and talk about what we liked about them pretty much and yeah. break it down from there. So I'm happy to um, do that. The Owen Wilson one's probably, it's just basically a lay of the land one, really. Yeah, it's um, a fun little intro piece. It's like, you know, when you open your magazine, you've got your little startup and mm-hmm. introduction almost. I mean, you kind of have two introductions here, but you're right. I don't think it's worth going too far. I mean, I, no. I think it's a great little piece. Yeah, it's got some nice bits. I really like the camera work with the bike. Oh, yeah, the POV the, shots. From the POVs. Yep. The, the, I, I quite like that. I liked it when he was, like, tailgating on trucks and he'd fall over and oh, yeah. cut to, like, a... But, it, yeah, obviously it's the one that's... Yeah, it's, you know, it's a good setting of the premise. It's it's basically talking about the city that this... Because, obviously, following, as we discover, even in the, the epilogue of this film... Mm. Sorry, the prologue, beg my pardon. Um, Bill Murray has died, his character, right. yep. uh, who has run this paper now for 50 years. Um, has died and they've agreed to release one last issue before closing the paper for good or mm. the, the the French dispatch as you will yeah and this is obviously then like as I said in my my log line it's uh, a, an amalgamation of these three of the most prominently rem- memorable stories from over that 50 year period from different writers yeah um, and which speaks to the fact that he's taken inspiration from real stories in the New Yorker. Yeah. And sort of like kind of recontextualize. Here's the retelling and of I, the story. And I, and I like that you brought up the Broadway thing. I think we're going to, we'll touch on that when we get to that story. Yes. Um, I think that's a hundred percent, you know, especially tying it back to even to the first half of the show, how we take inspiration from real life events and sort of transform it into multiple different mediums. Mm, yeah. Um, and uh, that's, that's really interesting, but um, basically, yeah. So they've, they've, then we go through each of them, and and the the base way of int- the Owen Wilson piece offers an introduction to the the, the paper itself, and it is really interesting because it's that nice balance that these. I think these aren't the three like best stories in the history. I think they. I think that log line's a little long. I think this is just the last issue they've agreed to on like the any sort of coincidentally dies on the. And the, I don't know if it's from their careers and such. I, I remember reading somewhere else that it was that. It was okay. a com- compilation of like previous okay. stories. Interesting. But yeah, so... Um, Not that that really matters because it's about the stories. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. so diving into the first one, which was that, like mm. you said, that concrete masterpiece. Which I, I have to say is probably my favorite I, of the three, if I had to break that it down. That is a shame because that's my favorite too. So... <laughs> I, uh, look, I will say this, because obviously we're going to break it down story by story, but I think 
I think I, I I like the stories the least as they go, but I think there's there's purposes to all three of them. And we'll get into that okay. soon. But I think just as a standalone story in terms of narrative characters and themes in particular about, you know, the artist or the troubled artist and the painter and, and the reproduction and redistribution of paintings and artworks. I loved all of that in the first story compared to the, the themes of the second and third ones. Sure. But we'll get to that. I don't disagree with you. I, I think the first one is... It's interesting because the, the first one's probably the, the most dominantly black and white one, I think. Quite possibly, yeah. Um, and that's that's quite interesting because a lot... Yeah, a, a lot of... Obviously, with the importance of the art side, mm. um, the use of, of, of black and white in this one is, is interesting. Um, obviously, it centres around a... Um, uh, a, com- a convict that was an artist, yep. Moses, um, played by predominantly Benicio del Toro, but a little, little yes. bit of uh, Tony Revelari or Re- uh, sorry, Revelori. Yes, Revelori. and I loved also, that switch. Who's also going to show up later this week in a film? Yes, <laughs> love that switch. Like I thought that was so clever. Yeah. Like doing that balance. I love his growl. And that's that's just that's total. <laughs> and you know that is that's a throwback to Isle of Dogs, isn't it? Nah, like, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that totally is. <laughs> so that's totally what that is. Um, what I really like about the first one, which baffles me, and I love the ambition behind it, was the. But also, what I I, I like, it's, I'm going to go about the cinematography for this one because yes. they do a pan shot where they do a lot of freeze frame work to discuss yeah, um, like the... tours and stuff like that. The art goes on, but obviously, it's not a freeze frame. It's just people trying to hold poses. As, as Yeah, and I like that they didn't like digitally go in and clean it up. They sort of just let them freeze as much as they humanly no, can. I think that that's what I love the most about it. Yes. Because it's not like the uh, Watchmen intro where they are like very much digitally mastered to either be completely frozen or moving in a very fluid, yeah, slow... Yeah, the Matrix sort of yeah, like digital this is, magic read. This is just pure cinema. And I think this is what he does so well is how much he does not rely on visual effects at all, mm. at least not in the visual effects to clean things up. Like you just said to, yes. or, or to lazily work around something. It's, it's the only times he uses visual effects are pure human animation esque stuff, which mm. we can talk about when we, especially when we get to the third um, of the stories. Yeah. Um, but obviously, and like we've mentioned, there's quite, you know, there's bits and bobs of stop motion here and there. Um, but I really liked that. That was the thing that stuck out the most to me. Um, that, and I, I really liked the performances from, you know, Del Toro is, is and Brody are, are particularly. Brody's amazing in this. Um, he was in an episode of Succession a few weeks back. And, uh, He's I'm really uh, good in that. And, and, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna botch this. Leia Sado, I'm gonna say. Le- yeah, Sadox maybe. Leia Sadox. I think she's As French. Simone, of course, so, the prison Simone, guard. who is sort of like the, the rosebud of the story. Yeah, yeah. The muse. Well, it's funny because, you know, you talk about yeah the use of black and white and it's probably the most, it's at its most in this story. I quickly wrote down as well, based this is from Wikipedia saying, is that a lot of the um, shots swap between 35mm Kodak film, which is the colour aspect that I would use, as well as uh, Eastman XX5222 uh, black and white. So that's the black and white photography. Mm-hmm. So it was very different... Um, imagine techniques. Being that, imagine being that 2A or 
two AC. <laughs> yeah, two ACs working their ass <laughs> first AC as well. Like, actually, yeah, they were going nuts. I had a whole yeah swapping lenses and everything. Crazy. But what I wanted to point out, what well, you know, what let me ask you this first, actually. Yeah. What do you think was the motivation between, but both the color versus black and white, and then the aspect ratio? What was the motivation between the changes? I really struggle. See, my the one thing it's I very really struggle. Flippant. My I struggle with aspect ratio spotting. Sometimes, like that's the one I always struggle with when I'm in a, a cinema. Yeah, like it's obvious. Like it's obvious when I'm watching it on a, a TV. Yes, but when I'm in a cinema, I totally forget about it. So yeah, you have to bear with me if I've got this wrong because I didn't notice that much. Does it switch when it goes to like the Tilda Swinton telling the story? Is that I think because it, it definitely switches the color. I, I think it does, but the one in particular I noticed that was, I don't want to say jarring, because I mm. think there is purpose behind this. The aspect ratio changes when Adrian Brody, he sort of has his uh, epiphany where he, he apologizes to Moses about, you know, scouting him about the, the the concrete paintings. And then he hears that there's a riot brewing behind. So we get the shot of him opening the door to look through, and then the shot of all the prisoners ready to charge in, that's in widescreen. But oh, then the two yeah. shots before and after that are closer to, I guess, four by three. Yeah. Um, which I thought was very interesting. So to me, that and the combination of when it would swap the color, when it switches to, to Simone's point of view, I think it's about perspective. So the aspect ratio and color changes based on the perspective of where the camera's looking at. I mean, that's a very vague guess. Could have even been that they just couldn't fit it in the space and they had to go widescreen for it. But potentially. I mean, but... Then again, it's like, I feel like they could have adjusted yeah, for there's that. Probably, I mean, like, there is definitely some form of uh, Consciousness. rationale behind it, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, maybe it was wise. Are you talking about when it does like the pan across, like what we're saying, the, the pseudo freeze frame stuff? Is that widescreen? Um, is it when he's at the door and then it like. It's literally crashes? when it. It's literally just the cut to the prisoners all like looking down the barrel of the lens. So it's a couple of shots before they crash through the wall. It's probably just POV perspective then, maybe. I like, think really so, to yeah. Get the scope. Well, even the initial scene when he's painting, I think it's Simone who's naked, mm-hmm. um, or when, when he walks out, as soon as he closes the door, the next shot is in colour. And we see mm-hmm. the room that he's been in is in complete colour. So again, that could be a perspective shift. Yeah. It, it's tricky. I definitely it, feel like yeah. colour, like the black and white colour is to show point of view emotion so of that character yeah. so that's how the character perceives it at that moment right and troubled vi- artist versus like the fi- the piece is finished yeah it's like yeah when the piece is finished oh we now see the color like yes and that definitely i think what will confirm what we're what we're trying to put forward here is the bit when they're both after the first time simone and um del toro's character is there moses 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 um, and have Simone made love with each other for the first time. <laughs> right. And they're lying in the laundry room. And <laughs> this is his first sort of creative um, epiphany that he's had artistic epiphany for 10 years. Right. Um, and he's looking at the, the, the ceiling and he's getting like the, he's starting to visualize the artwork that he wants to put together. And that's when the color starts to seep back in. That's really kind of confirming that, Aspect ratios and and color spectrums are and saturations are very much influenced by the point of view of the character. Yeah, because the same sort of thing happens a little bit later on when Brody's looking at the first Simone work. Yep. With his two uncles and he's looking mm. at it and he's seeing the color. Yet his uncles are not understanding what he's saying at all. Right. Yeah. 
I reckon I that's the funny, probably, it's the yeah. funniest one too out of all three of them. They're, my highlight scene is from the first story okay. because of, because of, because what... it was a very funny scene. <laughs> you might know what it I is. Think, <laughs> it probably would be my highlight scene. Too. <laughs> <laughs> he does humor so well, and often yeah. Brody's the one that is delivers the best. I think. Oh yeah, no, like he's human Grand Budapest is like one of the funniest things. Well, I just I love the line. This isn't the highlight scene, but I love when they have the meeting for the. And he's like, he's already orchestrated. Like, this is the date it's going to happen. I already have all these people coming. You know, it's in two weeks. And like, then, give me another year. I and need he just uh, maybe another year. And he's like, ah, that's just a perfect like. The framing is perfect. Which, by the way, the headroom is redonkulous in this one. But I love it. I love the yeah. exaggerating the height of all the sets. The Owen Wilson one but. where he's like literally in the bottom right corner and it's just <laughs> everything. Yeah, yeah. Hilarious. I think, yeah, it's it's definitely um, uh, quite an interesting film because obviously that dynamic between artist and muse, which we've explored in other yes. films before, like Portrait and such. So definitely, yeah. Portrait Shirley, like, you know, um, it in different mediums. So... I think the other really, yeah, like the other really, um, I think they're the biggest takeaways from this. So this one definitely felt like, um, I don't want to say the most character driven. This is actually probably the most, the quietest one to an extent. Um, and let yeah, I can, visual I can. storytelling do a lot more. Whereas, um, you know, when we go into the second and especially the third film yep. dialogue, the narration is quite heavy. Whereas I feel like this one was the one that actually abstained the most from, heavy amounts of dialogue. Yeah, and I think part of that is to do with, obviously, it's Tilda Swinton delivering the story through slideshow. So it's, it's yeah. more of an educational, here's the career of Moses. Yeah. So there's not a lot of internal monologues about his direct feelings mm. for the muse, for example. So I think that's part of it. And like I said, I do love the she thematic... Leaves a nude on her Yes, I know. I love that. <laughs> Stops to <laughs> that's me. <laughs> but I, and I, I just want to ask, is it an, uh, an NFT commentary about replication or reduplication of art i don't know i still don't know what nfts are to be honest i was actually to double check the nft meaning like you said I, nft and the biggest freak out in the question was uh, what nft yeah <laughs> it is i think it's it, i think they are digital assets but i think it's partly a meme because it's like what's the difference between me selling you a, a, a meme that i've created versus clicking copy and paste and sending you that meme i mean okay. there's a whole thing i have no idea okay but uh Anyway, I don't know. I think my my <laughs> the biggest takeaway I got from it was particularly uh, and probably one of the most prolific scenes to kind of highlight the the point of it was how that you know these people that profiteered off the the whole art situation like yep. it wasn't about the art it was solely about the marketing and especially in that that middle section where Brody's talking about like they can't see the woman it's like well if you can't like if you can't see like yeah you know that or they could draw this perfect sparrow in in forty five seconds and it's like yeah but will make people see it. Like, that's the thing. Mm, yeah. and, and then it went to that, you know, obviously, like, then Swinton's narrating how it went on this big tour and everyone just bought into it. And then it goes into the how um, this art showcase is going to happen in a prison and it has the counter of the bribe amount of money. <laughs> yeah, that, that was hilarious. Astronomically up. That was like, so funny, that, like, dual shot. Because on the right, it's them, like, travelling through the prisons and then on the left is he had the bride and it's just getting yeah. higher and higher and higher <laughs> that's a great shot i feel like that that one for me that that particular um section it definitely homaged the, the ones that homaged the most were probably um a mix of of probably um moonrise and um like there's bits of everything and everything but the two that yep. i think stuck the most with that was probably grand budapest and 
and and probably Moonrise for mm-hmm. that that section. Yeah. I'd say um, the second section. Yes. Uh, which was... Uh, so it's called Revisions to a Manifesto. So, of course, it's Francis McDormand writing the revision and added the appendix. and <laughs> Fran, Fran back. Fran back. <laughs> well, she'll be first ba- film. She- she's been back since... Uh, no Man Land. But then she's back later this month in Tragedy of Macbeth. A lot of people working. Yeah. And Chalamet. Back and Chalamet, yeah. two weeks in a row. <laughs> a bit, of, bit of Timmy. Well, I saw, I saw this and Don't Look Up back-to-back on days. Like a Friday and a Saturday, so he's just everywhere. Are you, are you sick of him yet? <laughs> no, no, su- surprisingly no. not. <laughs> I've, he's grown on me the longer I've like watched his films, the more I'm like, and they they want him to be the next. Not to get too tangential. Oh, Willy Wonka. They they want him to be the next Harry Osborn. Oh, I did read that. Yeah. So. Yeah, maybe. Um, I think Willy Wonka's I, a much more I was interesting gonna, I decision. I think he's too indie to do that. Like he's like too cool to right, be doing yeah. an MCU film. Just the opinion. guy from Chronicle doing <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wonder yeah. if he's back in the new <laughs> later this week. <laughs> Bring out the multiverse. So yeah, obviously this one, this one was quite interesting. So like we said, this centers mm. around a student protest, like an anti-war protest. Yep. is what it. Uh, I think it was basically on, which was you know nineteen nineteen sixty eight it was based off that sort of protest. So obviously that like Vietnam sort of time, obviously this was in the French perspective. So yep. um relative to um I I missed a lot of obviously the the historical intricacies of this. It definitely went a little over my head because I don't know much about yeah France in that time. I think my big takeaway was almost not the trivialness of it, but like there's a lot of immaturity from the young people and sort of the little rivalries they have, especially him with the girl. Um, I'll grab her name as Juliet, isn't mm. it? The, the the girlfriend. If I you would will. argue even from Frances McDormand's character though too. Yeah, well, there's there's that whole she doesn't want to like cross that barrier of of neutrality, which of course I mean, they joke that they're sleeping together. Her and Timothy Chalamet, mm. <laughs> which is what's hypocritical because they are sleeping exactly. Together. Yeah, yeah. Um, so her neutrality was completely ruined in the first five minutes of the f- of her section. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, when she's you know set up on this date with um, some of her younger friends with a very haggard looking Christoph Waltz. Oh my God, uh, Christoph Waltz is in this film. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I love it. And he looks so haggard. Through <laughs> <laughs> the shittest he's ever looked in a, a film. I think. Oh my God. Um, and I know it's he's probably he doesn't look like that at all. Like, but. That was he looked rough. I was like, oh, yeah. He looks kind of grimy. Um, <laughs> grimy. But I love, I love it. And it's obviously talking about sort of in this section, like her artist, artistic loneliness, and yep. sort of having you know mixing that theme in there with what you know seemingly feels like a bit like a midlife crisis too. Like, has she given up too much of this of her you know career because she doesn't have any like sort of love and affirmation in her life um, from someone personal? Yeah. Um, to the point where, you know, she like takes this, you know, follows these young idealistic teenagers almost as a way of like living vicariously through them. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that definitely But, comes... but she's profiling them. Yeah, well, that's it. <laughs> Quote unquote. Uh, she's getting to know Timothy Chalamet. Exactly. I love the casual, the him. casualness of that scene where she's in the bathroom and just casually just like oh, rips over the curtain and he's naked and he's just like, oh... I'm self-conscious about my muscles. <laughs> like, <that's the> thing. <laughs> I 
about my new growing muscles is what he says there are a lot of like single deer <laughs> uh, uh teardrop tears over the course oh, of the yeah. whole film as i noticed yeah that's, that's like, actually no really one, clever because little... obviously no crying it's a big part about no crying yes on the floor but a lot of people have single teardrops which i find that's fun. still it's a bit of an aside that's still my favorite line delivery ever is like the you're fired really <laughs> <laughs> no crying just, no crying and it pans up to no crying that delivery of really is f- brilliant it yeah. is so it may, I lose it every time yeah. but um, no I think I think that's and the part of that scene that I love so much I actually wrote the lines down because I thought it was so funny when when she's reading the initial manifesto and she's like oh it's a little damp and he's like oh, metaphorically or, or literally she's like well both yeah. and then he says and I, I, I love this line because it's like we, we both know where this comes from um, but he's like, oh, I don't need remarks. I only ask you to proofread it because you'd be so impressed by how good it already is. <laughs> That's a which great is, line. Is, yeah, <laughs> obviously it's the immaturity of a, of a teenager. Yes, and, yes. Um, it comes back to, you know, like I said, it's that she, you know, because she's sort of starts following them on this, on this journey starting, like, you know, th- then it cuts back to the journey she's gone on while following them because she's sort of like, yeah, wanting to, like you said, profiling, but honestly wanting to immerse herself in, in the idealism of youth because I think she thinks the people around her are, are absent of it or don't have it. Mm. And it's interesting because out of the three reporters, she's probably the most proper in her external appearance, yes. yet yes. quite probably the most impulsive and definitely the least, um, has the least in- journalistic integrity. Mm. Um, That's a really spot on observation. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it really sums up when they're both putting on like the, like she you know Shalomay comes out and he's in his gas mask suit and he's ready for oh, like yeah. the riots <laughs> she, puts she just like too. she just puts out the corner and they both just kind of look like obviously because you can't really see their faces and stuff so yeah. it's obs- obscuring of age yes and she like taps him like a teenager would tap another teenager um, like they're going to get up to trouble and then it just immediately hard cuts to the bouncing of a bed <laughs> or the squeaking <laughs> of a bed. And it's like, yeah, so it's, I think that pretty much sums up the, the journey that they go on. Obviously sort of the, and then, then it follows predominantly Chalamet's, um relationship with another teenage girl. Yeah, with, I think it's Juliet. Yeah, it's Juliet. Juliet, who I have not seen her in anything before. Let's see, Alina uh, Cordry. I'm going to go see. She is in... Oh, I haven't seen any of other films. Luna, The Specials. Mm. Yeah, I haven't seen her in any any of these. So, which is not too often you see a anomaly of a, a, a central Wes Anderson character nowadays. Like, you never normally... Right, yeah. Um, as, see as someone who you haven't really seen much of. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, she is French the whole time. She actually doesn't speak any English in her section, I believe. Oh yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. Whereas Shalom, oh, that, that's a good listen. point because she speaks fluently French and then he responds in English, but there's that mutual understanding. Yeah, I, that might also speak to the whole, you know, stories recontextualized and told through mediums mm-hmm. and and sort of ignoring that just that element that doesn't make sense because we've seen that in other movies. Yeah, before. I mean, it could also come back to obviously this is all being told from McDermott's point of view of her character, so yep. maybe she the use of Chalamet speaking explicitly English is because that's what she understands from him the most. Right. Like yeah. in those scenes where she's he's exchanging with Juliet, they probably both speaking in French. But yeah, what we likely. found we found we know Frances McDormand's character is not French. She's, I believe, American. Um, 
Just, oh. I don't think she's French. That's the thing. No, well, um, like you mean Frances McDormand? Her, no, a character. Oh, she's herself. an American actress. I would have thought she was like English or something. Uh, I think she, and I think in the film she's American. Right, the whole point right, is right, right, like right, Jeffrey Wright's character is American. They're just working for a French exactly newspaper. Yeah. So they could have had you know her personal exchanges with Chalamet could have been in English, and then that's how she's just perceived everything that she, he said. Yeah, as English. So. Um, I think that's definitely, once again, it's all about point of view and that might be why there was that, that language barrier because there is a personable barrier, like a personal difference barrier between McDermott's character and, and Juliet yeah. in the film, obviously because they're both uh, going after the same boy. <laughs> I like it, I like it. Young man, then, sorry. I won't say boy. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a man. Well, I, I guess he's a, what, a, a, an I older teenager well, in 20. the character I'm referring to. But... Yeah, I think he's 20. Okay. I think he is. Yeah. They're, they're definitely not in high school. They're in early university. Right. Well, yeah, universe. they're uni students. Yeah. But yeah. And then, of course, it ties up at the end. He, of course, dies in very silly, you know, uh, lightning accident, yeah. <laughs> I guess. And... Which is totally a callback to Moonrise Kingdom. Yes. Yes, yeah. it is. So, well done. There and, and there's a lot of characters that get electrocuted in Fantastic Mr. Fox as well. Very true. And and it was an Isle of Dogs. No, I'm figuring up in Isle of Dogs when they're on like that. Little the teleportation the, the thing. booth thing that they're the in for the radio booth reminds me of like that thing in Isle of Dogs when McDormand's character who does the translating yep. is in that <laughs> little booth. So, Very nice. Um, but yeah, obviously it's, it basically just talks about... It, it's a, obviously a story centred around the anti-war movements of the younger the younger teens and um, which was very commonplace in the, the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. You know, from our point of view, it was the Vietnam War and sort of the anti-war mood at that time so it's it just basically the story is talking it's comparing and contrasting how she finds people her age dull and kind of revels in the idealistic notions uh, and naivete yeah of, younger of, of young idiots essentially yeah. yeah well naivete that's a good way to put it yeah and then how that even becomes in his face becomes like an image um a myth or a legend like later on it becomes printed on t-shirts Sim- similar to the daisy in the gun sort yeah. of shot yeah you know so Exactly, and it's quite a it's it's a pretty simple story, but it's quite funny. Yeah, yeah it's very effective. It's cute. Yeah, no worries. And then cute romance. The third one, which is obviously centered around um, Jeffrey mm. Wright on a present a show conducted by Lee yeah, Shriver, yeah, like a a, pres- a broadcast, if you will, because yeah. he's a, he's a what's what's the term? He's got a, ty- a type. It's not um an eidetic memory, a type. A typogenic uh, memory? Typogenic? Yeah, typogenic memory. Something yeah. like that, yeah. So yeah, instead yeah. of photographic, it's typographic. Yeah. So, yeah, so he memorizes everything he's written yeah. or ever read. And um, which, uh, that always blows my mind that that's like, people have that. Photographic memories or, yeah. be so cool. Or that's, would it be cool? Incredible. Would it, yeah, would it be cool? <laughs> That'd be the thing, right? <laughs> it's like, would you really want to remember everything? Yeah, not exactly right. Um, And yeah, like that one obviously centers around um, a nice balance between... uh. Uh, technically it was meant to be what I like is it's meant to be a food story but obviously it, it mm. kind of takes a sort of turns into a bit of a caper caper film and and sort of rounds off all of the Wes Anderson normals that aren't with a couple of new ones like Jeffrey Wright and Leif Schreiber yeah who, of course but but that that is funny to the point where I was watching this film and we're like an hour 30 an hour 40 into this anthology film now and you're like oh yeah Willem Dafoe yeah <laughs> Sharonin like all these like Ed Norton, Ed Norton, like these huge names. It's like at the right at the tail end of the film, yeah. right at the end. <laughs> yeah. And in, I love that. Majoritively, like Sir Ronan's character, very small roles, like, tiny role, yeah. 
um, and Defoe, who were just essentially just. You know what I like about what I like about this film is obviously given the context of the last couple of years, it probably worked out shooting wise very effectively for a mm. lot of them because they all had very probably very short shooting schedules. Yeah, I want to double check if this. I think this was shot prior to COVID. Mm. Filming took place between November 2018 and March 2019. Wow, that's a long time. That's a lot. I'm but sure. Schedule, I'm shocked they that would have been scheduling because it's like imagine yeah. trying to schedule this many people in with all of their other projects going on. Yeah, that's incredible. Especially if you've only got to have them there for like, let's be honest, Saoirse Ronan probably wasn't there for longer than two a week. days, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, because it's like they don't have, um, especially when the third one has the greatest emphasis on animation too. Yes, yes, it's um, a good point. As an elongated sort of, what I it felt like classic, like the Tintin. That's it, what, I thought of Tintin. It's exactly yeah. what I thought of. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> but, I mean, it is French, but like yeah, I the, had the to actual, be Tintin. That the, had to be what yeah, they were throwing at. It looked too. exactly like Tintin, like the character designs. Yeah, yeah, like that's the, exactly what oh, I was thinking. I'm glad. <laughs> glad, and that's the first time he's ever done to my. Out of off oh, my like recollection, 2D animation. Yeah, that style. He's never done. Uh, yeah, I think you're probably right on that. He's done one. stop motion. Um, I've never seen him to my like maybe not that style at least that. Yeah, no, like the very tin tin 2D aesthetic, which I like because it's respecting the, the the context of the time in which they're talking yes. about. It's you know very Wes Anderson and it's colour and childish and could very much look like a picture book, which is a lot of what the Tintin comics used to. Yeah, yeah, thousand percent. That look. I'm actually looking at the Tintin Blu-ray right now. Down there. <laughs> Underrated. Needed a sequel. Oh, it's brilliant, isn't how it? Is, how isn't did it just... we get Ready Player One and not a sequel? <laughs> Seriously. I still don't know. I want it next year. I want it now. Yeah, I want it over Uncharted. Yeah. We could oh have just taken all that Uncharted money yeah. and put it into Tintin. Literally. It's, it, I mean, the best Uncharted movie already exists. It's called The Adventures of Tintin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, look, but besides that, I think what I loved about this story, and like I said, I do, I like the stories less as it goes along. So this obviously is. I don't want to say it's the weakest one. There's a lot. You're right. There's a lot being thrown at the role, the wall here, and the, the great cast. And I love the heist aspect of it, and the and the stuff of the food. But I think what I'm talking about, and what this amounts to, I think, is that it ends on the note of Bill Murray being like, "Well, what's the point of this story?" And then reading like the one little deleted line from the chef, mm. and being like, "That's what the story is." And the idea that this is probably the most bizarre and, and wacky story of them mm. that that goes in all sorts of weird directions. But the point is that. As, as journalists, you're almost trying to find the story. It's the same with documentary. When we go out and yeah. shoot documentaries, it's like we've got to find the story on the job, essentially. And that's how I that's how I sort of associated this story with, with that message sure. in a lot of ways. My question is now, because yeah. I, I don't really have too much to add to that, apart okay. from the Tintin animation. I thought that was great and, and stuff. And it was a fun, elongated scene. It's a fun little caper film. Is Would yeah. you reorder those three stories? Ooh... I think, like I said, I think this one works last because of that final little footnote of, but this okay. is the story right here. Maybe, but you see, or do you go the Treehouse of Horror route for Simpsons? Because they're very open about the second story is the worst. They know internally which stories are the best. So they yeah. do the first and the third, and then the second one is the weakest one um, in terms of the Halloween Simpsons spinoffs that they do. Um, but then again, it's like, does Wes Anderson know which ones of these are the weaker stories or not because i think it's very fair to say that you could find all three of these enjoyable and engaging yeah. and fun and and in regards to the story within story aspect of it i was constantly so engaged that i forgot that we were within several layers of stories mm-hmm. so i think that's really impressive in its own right um 
I think it, it's interesting because all mm. three of them offer a different sort of journalistic consensus and, and conclusion, actually. Like, right. Swindon's, uh, you know, Tilda Swinton's character gets criticised for spending an absurd amount of money and expenses on this journey, and it sort of talks That's about right, yeah. the indulgent, uh, the indulgent uh, pursuit to find the story. And yes, obviously it ties it back to art, and that was like the overindulgence. So there's definitely the correlation there. Um, McDormand's ca- is the immersion, pure immersion into the story, um, and not in the right way of just being shot at. You know, like it was right, more yeah, like but indulging yourself fully, in the story. Yeah, and getting to that point where you you've compromised your integrity, but you've potentially got a better result out of it, mm. rather than it just being a, a pure observational experience. It becomes a a personal and performative even right. piece, um, especially with that final scene when she gets completely enveloped in the ideological discussions by even just simply saying to Juliet that it's important that you like ask nicely and are polite because yes. who cares about that adults do exactly oh um, that's a great exchange that's such yeah. a great exchange yeah and adults care yeah yeah and obviously in the right one it's it's that um sort of like trying like that discussion of where where the story is is the story if the story was meant to be about food that last line from the chef. Yeah, of like, I've never taste, taste, it tasted anything like this before mm. in my old age or whatever the line is. Yeah. I think, I think the line's actually here on Wikipedia, word for word, but... Um, to do with the, the poison salt. Yeah, the, the taste of the poison was unlike anything totally an I had of, ever eaten Isle before. Of, Isle of Dogs reference, I would say. Yeah, that was, cool. That was a big Isle of Dogs-esque story. But um, yeah. yeah, I think they've all got little... Anic, like little themes to mm. them. Um, even the even the Owen Wilson prologue one, where it talks about like Bill Murray being like, "Why don't you talk about flowers? Or you talk about lovely stuff." And he's like, "Well, that's not real. That's not. Yeah. What, that's not yeah. what I saw. That's not how I feel. I don't like those things. Mm, I, like, I don't I, like flowers. <laughs> I see the poeticness in the roughness and and yeah. confronting aspects of life. I think each of them. Uh, that's what I loved about the little interim bits yeah. when he goes to each of their quarters. And yeah, because there are those little, like, um, you're right, like, intercepting scenes between all the stories. Mm. Yeah, especially, and that's what makes the, the conclusion, the, the epilogue, so important, when obviously mm. following the, the summation of the, the Wright, uh, Jeffrey Wright's um, character's story, um, they all go to his office and find that he has died of a heart attack. Mm, yeah. In a, and I love the juxtaposition, because the very first shot is obviously the newspaper and, and it being fitted the automation of it mm. um which i think that was stop motion yeah. the newspaper so good. God, that was great but then of course you juxtapose it at the end with the it's dead and there's yeah. no activity that's sad yeah. that's very sad and then i'm all obviously agreeing that this was going to be like the last one and and then putting all collectively putting together the obituary section yes yeah um which was the dialogue we heard at the start yeah and then the fact that having they're having fun with it like they're yeah. having fun recalling stories and information about the boss and it is not about crying because no. it's about, you know, what is the story? Let's yeah. tell that story. Exactly. No worries. Yeah. Well, Jake. This film's got... brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Do you have anything else you want to add or you want to jump into highlight scenes? No, let's talk about highlight scenes. What is your highlight scene, Jake? So you might have guessed. I'm not too sure. It has to be the uh, the prison hearing. <laughs> oh, where... that's not mine. I'm happy. Oh, interesting. No, a... it's, it's um of course, he's... Like they want him to come out so he can be like an artist, and Adrian Brody's there, and um, <laughs> he thinks it's a courtroom. He's like, what he says, like no further questions. Or <laughs> he just doesn't know what he's talking about. I was just laughing because uh, he just like walks in. He, he thinks he has authority, and I love the camera 
sort of track as he like jumps over the balcony thing and all the barricading like starts walking mm-hmm. to the not the judge but, yeah it's just yeah. i was cracking up that whole scene i don't know what was so i was really disappointed it. my cinema did not get in on the wes anderson humor no but i was the only one laughing in my cinema yeah i really it was bizarre would- I hope, because I probably will see this a second time, because I know a friend of the show, James, really wants to see it. Um, he oh, joked he that just because he couldn't do it, couldn't see it and couldn't come on for it, that we should just pencil in his ghost voice again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Back from episode 20. <laughs> the same text or the same words. Um, but um, I would like to, because he loved like, that humor side yeah. where it's like, you know, it's he does have funny stuff, and I find all of his films have entertaining and funny moments in them, even when they have very serious stuff too. Yeah. So it was very disappointing to be in a cinema of people that I didn't feel like really wanted to see the film or weren't like enthralled by it. It seemed very flat, and it's always that's a, a shame, shame. Yeah. I mean, if we like, saw the preview screenings, it would have been a much more infused. Yeah. Like crowd. I have my critiques of like like the Jojo Rabbit, where they were laughing too much when we went and saw Jojo Rabbit right, and yeah. stuff, like it was too over the top. But it's like. Like, that scene's funny. And then my highlight scene is when Brody is abusing Del Toro's character uh, at the end there because he's painted all of these Simone works on the concrete and it's going to, they're never going to be able to get it out of there. Yeah. Or it's going to take ages to get out of there. And he's just abusing him and calling him like an idiot and stuff. And then you just hear the growl and it just hard cuts to him chasing him around. Oh, yeah, with a wheelchair POV. That's a brilliant shot. It's like, you know, it's great because they've reused that POV star with the wheels again. And it's just, but it cuts. It's the, I love, I don't know how Del Toro managed to have this perfect balance between looking scary as all hell and like Sicario. And then kind of yeah. having that sad puppy dog look that he has in this one. Yeah, he's yeah, like a yeah, sad yeah. puppy dog. Um, and just Brody just like very like slipperily moving around the room clumsily and like <laughs> trying to avoid him and like slipping over and trying to throw things in his Oh, way. he's throwing plates at him and stuff like and that. It, yeah. And it's funny because it like obviously, you know, by the end of it, like they both like apologize and like hug and embrace. Yeah. So yep. it's... It's strange that there's that perfect balance of affirmation and, and even hatred at times for each other. And yeah, it's, very, weird, it's an interesting relationship they have. The fact that nobody was laughing in that scene just like so disappointed me because I was just there like laughing and I was like like a crazy person because it was yeah. so funny. It was similar, although it wasn't as bad with Don't Look Up because I saw it with um, friends of the show, Stephen and Tom, actually, who mm. I, don't, I don't see Tom enough. But it was the three of us and then like, a couple of people in front of us, one guy like way back, he would randomly just laugh at like random scenes, but then otherwise it was just the three of us bawling the whole time. And I think even though it's like awkward for other people, but it's like, it's a comedy. Yeah. We're allowed to laugh. Screw you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> laugh with us. No but worries. Yeah. Well, The French Dispatch is currently out in cinemas near you. Ooh, exciting. But speaking of cinemas, Jake, what is new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Yeah, it's a bit of a slower week, but there's some good stuff coming up. We've got The Hand of God, uh, which the it's the Italian drama I mentioned a few weeks ago, is now dropping on Netflix this week, as well as the second season of The Witcher. Did you ever watch The Witcher? No. No. I got really disappointed too. Cowboy Bebop is not getting renewed for season two. Yeah, yeah. Season one can't... <laughs> Netflix are quick on the, the quick on the dial. Yeah, it's not, not going to get Squid Game level numbers, apparently. It's not worth the time, which is such a yeah. disappointment because they got... They finish it, and it's like so clear they needed to have at least one more season. And, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's not such a disappointment. A that something that honestly, but that's just maybe sci-fi just doesn't sell 
that well when it comes to serialized formats. I don't, I don't know. I think I it was tricky because the... you had you had the hardcore anime fan base that probably unfairly crapped on it a lot, but you know it's hard it's hard for either of us to comment on that because we haven't seen the original. I know, version, but, but it's but, like yeah. even if I had seen the original, it's like I still could have enjoyed it. But it, yeah, right. it looked disappointing. Um, I would. It's good to see The Witcher gets season two because I know that yeah, seems sure. to follow a very similar sort of thing to the Bebop discussion where yeah well based on the game based on the book yeah and the people that are in it it's that labor of love thing they really wanted it to be accurate accurate to the respect the gaming or the literature communities so i know henry cavill's like obsessed with it oh he's a huge like pc gamer so he loves the witcher which is great that's what you want man that's what you want as opposed to tom holland what's uncharted (laughs) that's my assault i just assume that he he didn't. He haven't even heard of the games until he got cast in the movie. But I'm really not a fan yeah. of like like I think they're all great cast for those roles. But that right. main Spider-Man cast, not the biggest fan of them. Like in interviews, they're always kind of a bit wankery. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? Like... I don't know. There's uh, like I've never been a big fan of like the actor of Ned and stuff. Like I've seen him oh. like stuff. I just think okay, they're just kind of like very clearly just at like I don't, too I don't cool, get that too vibe. Cool for, uh, that's just my opinion. Know. Hot take. Fair enough. Zeke. That's there's a hot opinion from Zeke. Coming to stand this week, we have Godzilla, The Wizard of Oz, and Eyes Wide Shut, which is a great Kubrick film, and that's a weird mix, but hey, that's what's coming out. Uh, coming to Disney Plus is the animated film Ron's Gone Ron, as well as Glass and the horror film Antlers. That's pretty recent, so you're excited about that. Apple TV Plus sees Swan Song, which stars Mahershala Ali as a loving husband and father, diagnosed with a terminal illness, and presented with an alternative solution from his doctor. To shield his family from grief. That's interesting. Mm. But uh, hey, we love Mahershala on this show. And coming to cinemas this week, we have, I mentioned it earlier, The Lost Daughter. It's Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, and she's a college professor uh, confront her unsettling past while vacaying in Italy. Her obsession with a woman and her daughter prompts memories of her early motherhood. So it stars Dakota Johnson and Olivia Coleman. Sounds a little like the Aussie film Angel of Mine, but I saw the trailer for this and it looks awesome. Cool. So I'm really excited for this. So that'll drop later in the month. I think on the 31st for Netflix, but you can catch it in cinemas in the next week. As well as The Scary of 61st, which sees two 20-something roommates and their lives up- upended after finding out a dark secret about their new Manhattan apartment. The trailer for this looks spooky as hell. Like, it's really sort of grainy film footage and lots of, like, religious iconography, mm. but, like, the blood spilling and just really bad performance. It looks like a classic cult horror film. Right. Kind of keen on it. Interesting. Yeah, it generally looks <laughs> creepy. Like, I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm excited. And uh, is this a finally? It is a finally. And most surprisingly, Steven Spielberg's adaptation of West Side Story is specifically playing this Friday the 17th at Hoyt's. Spicy. So it's a little early. I think it's a one-day thing, but maybe every... we should go to that because everyone's going to be going to another film. That's true. Well, that's the Thursday. Mm. Of course, this is Friday. Seems to be, but Thursday, Thursday, something else. Well, Jake, what are we watching? <laughs> Next week in the show, we're watching Spider-Man: No Way Home. Oh, look at this. This is a good one. Some suggest that Parker's powers include the male spider's ability to hypnotize females. Stop! Come on. <laughs> yes, my spider lord. <laughs> Can we just, like, stay up here all day? It is so crazy down there. That's right, folks. Spider-Man is, in fact, Peter Parker. Listen, I did not kill Mysterio. The drones did. The drones that are yours. Does any part of you feel relieved about all this? What do you mean? 
now that everybody knows, you don't really have to hide or lie to people. For the record, I never wanted to lie to you. But how do you tell someone that you're Spider-Man? When Mysterio revealed my identity, my entire life got screwed up. I was wondering if maybe you could make it so that he never did. Strange. Don't cast that spell. It's too dangerous. Fine. I won't. Our world is about to forget that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Wait, everyone? Can't some people still know? That's not how the spell works. So MJ's gonna forget about everything we've ever been through? Stop tampering with the spell. Oh my god, Ned, he's my best friend. Oh, my Aunt May should really know. Stop talking! What just happened? With his identity now revealed, our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man asks for help from Doctor Strange to restore normalcy to his life. This, however, inadvertently causes a multiverse-spanning tear in the world, forcing him to discover what it truly means to be Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Are you excited? That's my, my, my wave sling. <laughs> good, very yeah, good. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> a lot of people are. A lot of people. Yes. Are. Maybe, maybe if I get the time, I might get like a couple of because there's a lot of people I know seeing this, and maybe we should right. consider doing. A... Well, we t- we talked about a Thursday screening. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'm like, I don't want to go with uh, anyone but you this okay, week. Okay, fair enough. because I know some of the people, much as they are friends of the show. Yes, it would be a very intense experience with them. Right. See, um, I'm I'm kind of looking forward to the big crowd instead of like. To be fair, flashback to Endgame. I wanted to punch half the theater because they were taking flash photography of the screen 30 minutes in. Like, we get it. You're watching a movie. Stop taking photos. Uh, If this happens again, I'm going to be pissed. At these screenings, they should hire more people at the cinemas and have someone actually Mm. watching people. That's not a bad idea. Because they do that at, um, like, live theater productions on Broadway. Like, they have, like, people that stand at the gate and make sure you get to your seat. But then also you phone out halfway through the performance they yeah. come and tell you off or they kick you out it was shocking at Endgame the fact that it doesn't happen at cinemas for these like, when there's 20 people fair enough you yeah. can. but when your cinema is completely full which it's going to be um, yeah. I mean it's sold out like everywhere it's yeah. insane yeah. so um, they definitely need to be onto it or I'm just going to yell at someone this time because I'm not dealing with that again Yeah, no, I'm going to have another gracious. repeat of uh and my in-game oh, yeah, yeah. experience outside the cinema. <laughs> People spoiling it. We're going to have to wear our headphones going into this was one. He, I, but it wasn't about me. It was about spoiling it for you. I right, didn't really yeah. care. But right, it's like, yeah. we went all day. We went. We waited to 11pm to get our tickets. And, and get right to the door. <laughs> it's like I'm sure we talked about it on our in-game episode. I think we did. Ages and ages ago. Because it was but, one of the funniest, probably one of the funniest cinematic things. Oh, it was, that was hilarious. But um, I'm, I mean, look, I'm part of me actually anticipates that I'm not even going to like this film in the sense of like, I think the pacing and, and the story structure, I think it's going to be really messy potentially. But that being said, it's like, I can't withstand the, the nostalgic flair of what's potentially going to happen in this film. And then there are, there are very massive clues as to, you know, obviously the villains are going to be in it from all the other films, but are we going to do what we did for our black widow episode and just power update in the first half of the uh, show? I mean, we can, if you want, I mean, I be I've I've talked about Eternals and Shang Chi. I think they're both fine. 
cool. I really don't have much don't to say about any of those build entries. I'm myself up to even watch them. So, because I'd rather watch some of the cool new things coming to yeah. streaming platforms and in the cinemas. Exactly. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Star Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And I'll catch you next. We'll catch you next you, week. You, you, you. Just me, explicitly. No. But I want to talk about Spider Man. <laughs> it would be a short show if it's just me. I <laughs> 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 will catch you next week with Spider Man. No way home. <laughs>